0: Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, December 28, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Top 10 Iowa Stories of 2023. This is from the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. As 2023 draws to a close, The Courier looks back at some of the biggest and most controversial news stories of 2023. After a contentious legislative session and on the eve of the 2024 Iowa caucuses, it's no surprise that politics dominates this year's list. The choices are presented in chronological order with no pretense of rating them by importance. 1. In January, surrounded by school choice advocates and private school students, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a huge private school assistance bill, the culmination of a three-year effort and a victory on one of the governor's top legislative priorities. The program will provide $7,600 education savings accounts for tuition and expenses at private schools, eventually open to all students regardless of income it will cost an estimated $345 million annually by 2027. Supporters say the law provides choice for parents to send children to private school who can't afford it. Opponents say it will siphon money from public schools and fund unaccountable private schools that can turn away students with disabilities or who don't share their values. Two, in March, Republican state lawmakers passed a slate of anti LGBTQ bills, including a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. Lawmakers also passed a law requiring students, employees, parents, and visitors to use restrooms, changing rooms, and other related facilities according to their biological sex as listed on a person's official birth certificate. Thousands of Iowans publicly protested. Students at dozens of schools across the state walked out of classes and hundreds attended rallies at the Iowa Capitol. Democratic lawmakers, teachers, LGBTQ organizers, and students said the bill's contradict notions of freedom and liberty. Republicans described the ban on gender-affirming care as necessary to protect children from medical care when the science is not settled, and the bathroom bill as a common-sense way to ensure the privacy and safety of students. 3. In May, Reynolds signed a slate of education bills into law, including a bill limiting LGBTQ instruction in topics through 6th grade and barring books with sexual content from school libraries. The law bars discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through 6th grade, bans books depicting sex acts from school libraries, and requires schools to notify parents if a student requests a change in their name or pronouns. Supporters said it expands parents' rights and gives them more input over their children's education. It was opposed by LGBTQ rights organizations, which said it would put transgender youths in danger. Four, on May 28th, structural issues led to the partial collapse of an apartment building in Davenport killing three people. At the time of the collapse, there were 53 residents registered as living in the 80-unit building. Search and rescue efforts continued for nearly a week at the six-story apartment building constructed in 2015 and 16. It was eventually demolished, but left behind a slew of lawsuits, most still unresolved. 5. In July, Reynolds signed into law a near-total ban on abortions in Iowa passed three days earlier by a special session of the Iowa legislature. Days later, a Polk County District Court judge temporarily blocked enforcement of the new law. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd in November filed the state's legal argument to the Iowa Supreme Court seeking to uphold a law that would ban most abortions after six weeks. Justices planned to hear the appeal. 6. In October... Navigator CO2, one of three carbon dioxide pipeline companies seeking to build in Iowa, announced it was canceling its proposal because of, quote, unpredictable regulatory environment in Iowa and South Dakota. The pipeline projects are meant to capture lucrative federal tax credits for sequestering carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas that is a primary driver of climate change. Ethanol plants would benefit from the tax credits and from producing low-carbon fuels that can be sold in stricter markets. But activists cite safety risks while questioning the alleged environmental benefits of the projects, and landowners have balked at the proposed use of eminent domain to acquire easements for the projects. The pipeline proposals remain by Summit Carbon Solutions and Wolf solutions. Wolf said it will not use eminent domain for its short route in Iowa. In November, this is number seven, candidates who supported restrictions on school materials and classroom discussions about gender and transgender students were roundly defeated in school board elections across Iowa. School board elections in Mason City, Linmar, Ankeny, and Johnston school districts Just to name a few, went almost exclusively for candidates who were supported by the teachers' union and who opposed book policing and transgender student policies. Almost exclusively, candidates who were endorsed by conservative groups, including the self described parents' right advocacy group Moms for Liberty, failed. In 2021, school board elections in Iowa and across the country swung toward candidates who opposed pandemic-era restrictions on schools, including closures and mask mandates. In 2023, the pendulum swung the opposite direction. Eight, in November, Reynolds officially endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his quest for the Republican presidential nomination, calling him, quote, one of the most effective leaders I have ever seen, unquote. Reynolds originally said she would remain neutral in the run-up to the caucuses, but over the summer began to suggest she might endorse after all. Typically, Iowa's governors have stayed neutral. Donald Trump criticized Reynolds as disloyal. He called the decision the end of her political career. This month, Trump's campaign released an ad including comments from Reynolds praising the former president. She argued the ad was misleading since she has endorsed DeSantis. 9. Throughout 2023, former President Donald Trump dominated the contest for Iowa's delegates to the 2024 Republican National Convention. Trump currently leads his Republican rivals by more than 30 percentage points, according to a Real Clear Politics average of Iowa polls. Many political experts predicted the anti-Trump GOP vote would consolidate as the Iowa caucuses draw nearer. Instead, Trump's advantage has grown. Trump had the support of 51% of likely Iowa Republican caucus attendees in a survey released this month conducted by J. Seltzer Selzer for the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Mediacom. Trump's standing grew by 8 percentage points from a similar poll in October. While Trump rivals like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley devoted huge amounts of time and money to Iowa Trump has visited the state much less although he stopped here four times in the last month ten in December a satanic temple display inside the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines was destroyed and a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot who was recently defeated in a statehouse election in Mississippi was accused of causing the damage. A Facebook posting by the Satanic Temple said the display, known as a Baphomet statue, was destroyed beyond repair. The display is permitted by rules that govern religious installations inside the Capitol, but drew criticism from many conservatives, including presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, but others, including state representative John Dunwell, Republican of Newton, who also is a minister, warned against allowing a vocal critic to silence a majority for thinking or believing differently than the majority. Writing on Facebook, Dunwell said, I don't want the state evaluating and making determinations about religions. Shocked, so many want to give up their freedom so they don't have to see a display they disagree with. Next is Judge to Rule by January 1st on Law Banning School Books by Aaron Murphy. A federal judge said he will rule by January 1st whether to halt implementation and enforcement of Iowa's new state law that prohibits the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade and requires the removal of any school materials that depict sex acts. Judge Stephen H. Locker uh, of the U.S. District Court in Iowa's Southern District gave himself the New Year's deadline for his ruling after a hearing the Friday before Christmas at the U.S. District Courthouse. During the roughly three-hour hearing, Locker heard arguments from attorneys in two separate lawsuits that are challenging the new state law, from the plaintiffs, the ACLU of Iowa and Penguin Random House Publishing, and from the state of Iowa. The ACLU of Iowa and Penguin Random House are arguing the new state law is unconstitutional because it violates the free speech of their plaintiffs, which include LGBTQ students, the LGBTQ advocacy organization, Iowa Safe Schools, the Iowa State Education Association Teachers Union, and the publishing company. They have asked the court to enjoin the new law, which would stop its implementation. The law, Senate File 496, passed the Iowa legislature with only Republican support and was signed into law by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. It has resulted in the removal of books from school libraries. Thomas Story, an attorney for the ACLU of Iowa, argued Friday that the state law represents the state exercising control over matters of opinion and thought. He said LGBTQ students are self-silencing for fear of the new law, which includes punishment for teachers and other educators who violate the law. Under the law, the first violation calls for a warning, and a subsequent violation could put the educator before the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners, which handles educator licensing and which could consider disciplinary action. Quote, they know they can't go to their teacher, Story argued, adding that the new law has chilled students' free speech. Story also argued that when Ever, advocates for the law cite examples of graphic content they believe should be banned from schools. They only use examples that depict sexual acts between LGBTQ characters or individuals. Never depictions of heterosexual sex acts. Story also argued the law is too vague, which has created confusion among school leaders about what content is allowed in school curriculum and libraries And what is prohibited. Supporters of the law have pushed back on that argument since it was being moved through the legislative process. Daniel Johnston, an assistant attorney general arguing on behalf of the state, continued that defense during Friday's hearing. He said some school districts may be misinterpreting the law by applying it too broadly. The law keeps graphic depictions out of schools, Johnston said. Friday's hearing and accompanying legal filings revealed the state's position that the section of the law that prohibits the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade does not apply to library materials, only classroom curriculum. It would have been nice if the state would tell everybody that a long time ago, Story said to reporters after the hearing. Johnston also conceded to Locker, the judge, that a teacher who reads to students a book that includes gay characters would be in violation of the law because that would be considered classroom curriculum. Locker at times appeared sympathetic to the educators who say the new law is too vague and unclear, and who fault the state for not providing specific guidance to help schools comply with the law. Locker also pushed back at story, challenging the argument that the law discriminates against LGBTQ students. It's one of the most bizarre laws I've ever read in my life, Locker said, but it is content neutral. Attorney Fred Sperling, arguing on behalf of Penguin Random House, called the law an, quote, unprecedented assault on school libraries, unquote. He argued to the court that the law was written too broadly and, as evidence, noted that the law would ban from schools any book that contains a description of the law, since the law defines and thus describes sex acts. Sperling is from the national law firm, Errant Fox Schiff. Among his clients is professional basketball great, Michael Jordan. Most of the new Iowa law went into effect this summer, but the punishments for educators who violate the law are set to go into effect January 1st. Locker said he will provide his ruling on or before that date. Now this story, Iowa Rejects Millions in Summer Food Aid for Kids by Aaron Jordan. Iowa will turn down federal funding to pay for summer food aid to children, opting instead for a state-funded program officials say will provide better nutrition and avoid spending $2.2 million a year on administration. Family advocates decried the decision announced the Friday before Christmas and questioned the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services' estimate of costs for running the three-month program. It's a huge loss for Iowa, said State Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, Democrat of West Des Moines. If we're talking some 20-some million dollars coming from the federal government, I don't think the state is going to be matching that. They are just going to be leaving it to the charities to make up the difference. Summer EBT, started during the COVID-19 pandemic and slated to become permanent in 2024, provides low-income children with $40 per month in benefits during the three months of the summer. The U.S. Department of Agriculture covers the cost of the benefits, but states must pay for half of the administrative costs. States have until January 1st to notify the USDA if they want to provide summer EBT next summer. Iowa announced its decision to bypass federal funding Friday. Quote, federal COVID-era cash benefit programs are not sustainable and don't provide long-term solutions for the issues impacting children and families, Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement. An EBT card does nothing to promote nutrition at a time when childhood obesity has become an epidemic. Instead, Iowa will continue to support Iowa children eligible for food assistance year round by enhancing and expanding already existing childhood nutrition programs, she said. HHS and the Department of Education have well-established programs in place that leverage partnerships with community-based providers and schools who understand the needs of the families they serve, Reynolds said. If the Biden administration and Congress want to make a real commitment to family well-being, they should invest in already existing programs and infrastructure at the state level and give us the flexibility to tailor them to our state's needs, unquote. Trone Garriott said she did not know how Health and Human Services determined the state's share of administrative costs for the summer EBT program would be $2.2 million. Quote, it costs our state $2.2 million in shared administrative costs to run the entire SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, for the whole state, she said. Garriott is a Lutheran pastor and coordinator of Interfaith Engagement, for the Des Moines Area Religious Council Food Pantry Network, which provided 26,469 unique individuals a three-day supply of food in November, she said. The Iowa senator said she recently visited a food bank in Humboldt in northwest Iowa that was running out of food. We are in a food insecurity crisis in Iowa, she said. Of the 132,000 Iowa households, currently enrolled in SNAP. 41.5 percent have children in the home, the Iowa Human Services Agency reported. SNAP enrollment has declined, down from over 150,000 households in 2020 to 132,000 for 2024, the agency said. Last summer, more than 1.6 million meals and snacks were served to children 18 and younger, throughout Iowa as part of the Summer Food Service Program and Seamless Summer Option Program. Quote, funded through the USDA and administered by the Iowa Department of Education, each of the 500-plus meal sites in low-income areas across Iowa are run by local sponsors to ensure children can get nutritious meals during the summer at no cost in a safe and supervised environment, unquote, the Iowa agency reported. This isn't the first time the Reynolds administration has snubbed federal funding from the Democratic administration. In April, Iowa announced it would not seek $3 million in federal climate planning money. Instead, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency authorized agencies in the corridor and around central Iowa to seek the money. Reynolds also rejected $95 million for COVID-19 testing in schools in 2021 that was part of the American Rescue Plan Act. Now turning to page two, Glenwood doctor found guilty of assault avoids jail time. A Glenwood doctor found guilty of assaulting a patient won't face any jail time. Dr. Calvin Weber, 65, was arrested in July following a criminal complaint by one of his patients who claimed that Weber, a doctor of dental surgery, had called her sexy and had unwanted physical contact with her. Weber was found guilty in a non jury trial, according to the Mills County Attorney's Office. In a December 19th ruling by Magistrate Keith Tucker, Weber was found guilty of assault, a simple misdemeanor, with a maximum penalty of $855 and up to 30 days in jail. Weber was fined the maximum amount, but avoided jail time. Weber was also ordered to have no contact with the patient for 12 months from the date of the adjudication. Sydney teenager arrested Tuesday for creating hit list. An 18-year-old Sydney high school student was arrested Tuesday for making what law enforcement described as a hit list to target for arson. Kaylin Sorrell was arrested on suspicion of seven counts of ter- terroristic threats, a Class D felony, according to a news release from Fremont County Sheriff Kevin Astrope. Sorrell allegedly created the hit list of students and staff at Sydney High School as well as other people in the community. The Sheriff's Office said in the release that Sorrell threatened to commit acts of arson toward the people on the list. Sorrell was held on a $5,000 cash bond, according to the release. Iowa Code states that the felony offense requires a reasonable expectation or fear of the imminent commission of such an act of terrorism, in addition to the threat itself. And 74-year-old struck and killed by vehicle early Christmas Eve. A 74-year-old man who was struck by a vehicle and died early Sunday in the West End of Council Bluffs has been identified by police. The man was near a vehicle on the street about 3.21 a.m. Sunday near the intersection of Poplar Drive and Birch Street when he was struck by a passing vehicle, according to the Council Bluffs Police Department news release. A Council Bluffs police spokesman said Juan Avalos was pronounced dead at the scene. The female driver of the vehicle was not injured and her name has not been released. The intersection was closed Sunday morning. The police spokesman said Wednesday that the incident remains under investigation. Now, this story Dodge Trust presents $70,000 to nonprofits by Scott Stewart. The legacy of General Grenville Dodge lives on in good works taking place every day in Council Bluffs. The Dodge Trust was created in 1989 after the city government received one-third of the residuary estate of General Grenville Dodge. Its proceeds funds basic human needs for Council Bluff residents. An additional $900,000 bequest has grown over the years to $3.5 million under the management of the Dodge Trust Board of Trustees. More than $2 million in grants has been given Since the trust's inception, a total of $70,000 was presented this year to nonprofit organizations during a ceremony Friday, December 15th at Council Bluffs City Hall. The bulk of this year's funding was split between the Council Bluffs Pantry Association, which received $25,000, and New Visions Homeless Services, which received $20,000. The pantry will use its funding to buy food and personal hygiene items. As we all know, there's a lot of need, Treasurer Teresa Hildreth said. Hopefully, it will make a big difference. New Visions plans to invest its grant into shelter services. We do a lot with these dollars, just like everyone else, President and CEO Brandy Waller said. The money also will help New Visions to offer its Winter Warning Center especially with a 30% cut in state funding. The warming centers will operate January through April. Additional grant recipients were Micah House, $5,500. Wings of Hope, $5,000. Visiting Nurse Association, $4,000. Jenny Edmondson Foundation, $2,000. Salvation Army, $2,000. CHI, Health Mercy Hospital, $1,500. Council Bluffs Ministry with the Mentally Handicapped, $1,000. Heartland Family Service, $1,000. Interfaith Response Incorporated, $1,000. Thriving Titans, $1,000. And Catholic Charities, $1,000. And then next we have YMCA Official Wins National In Shape Award by Tim Roer. A local YMCA official has been nationally recognized for a program promoting physical fitness for those dealing with mental health issues. Leo McIntosh, Operations Director for YMCA of Greater Omaha, recently won the National In Shape Community Champion Award for his efforts to increase access for these individuals to specialized physical fitness programs. We partner with Heartland Family Services, and this is our third year doing it. McIntosh told the non-perial in an interview. In Shape is a program for adults experiencing serious and persistent mental issues. The evidence-based wellness service seeks to improve their physical health and quality of life while living with mental illness. McIntosh said they meet with these individuals at the Council Bluffs YMCA for an initial 12-week program that focuses on exercises that best fit these individuals. The trainers even work alongside them to improve their comfort level. Once the program is completed, the in shape program participants take part in another twelve week program alongside others with similar issues. I think Heartland Family Services is getting great results, McIntosh said. Amanda Cavan, Heartland Family Services In Shape Coordinator, praised MacIntosh. Leo and the YMCA and Council Bluffs have been champions of the InShape program since we first approached them in 2017, Kevin said. Leo worked with our program to offer membership fees that would be feasible to a lower income population. He has also been extremely open to having those with no income use the facility while working with our health mentors. The YMCA has also helped InShape provide safe spaces for people in need and organized a fitness class at no extra cost to members, she said. They see areas of need in our community and try the best they can to help, she said. This is a huge reflection of Leo's leadership. Though appreciative, McIntosh said the award isn't just his. It's for the entire team at the YMCA, he said. This story is titled New Hospital Gets Approval for Tax Credits by Scott Stewart. The Iowa Economic Development Authority approved economic development incentives for a proposed behavioral health hospital in Council Bluffs. The IEDA Board approved tax benefits for the Acadia Healthcare Company, Incorporated through the Targeted Jobs Withholding Program on December 15, according to a news release. Council Bluff City Council members voted November 27th to approve a joint application between the City and Acadia for financial assistance for the healthcare company's project at the southwest corner of South 24th Street and Richard Downing Avenue. A new 71,000-square-foot facility will provide residential care, specialized care, and outpatient programming representing a $64.5 million capital investment. The hospital is expected to create 144 jobs, and 54 of those jobs would have a qualifying wage of at least $26.35 per hour, which is the city's hourly wage threshold for fiscal year 2024. In the application, Acadia and the city estimated the qualifying jobs actually would pay $49.12 per hour, or $102,169 annually. The Targeted Jobs Withholding Tax Credit Program allows companies to receive a rebate of up to 3% of its payroll withholding taxes matched by the City for up to 10 years. The City is also providing tax increment financing for the new hospital, allowing for tax abatement on improvements made on the property for either 3 years at a 100% abatement or following a 10-year sliding scale. Acadia Healthcare will partner with Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital on the Behavioral Healthcare Facility, which will have 24 inpatient beds for children and adolescents, as well as intensive outpatient services. Construction is planned to start on March with completion in August 2025. The hospital is expected to open in 2026. You are listening to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for thursday december 28 2023 on iris the iowa radio reading information service for the blind next we'll turn to today's obituaries walter sherman december 15th 2024 to december 24th 2023 walter sherman aged 99 of council bluffs passed away on sunday december 24th 2023 He was born on December fifteenth, 2024, in Council Bluffs to John Edward and Lillian Furler Sherman. Walter attended Thomas Jefferson High School and graduated with the class of 1943. He was active in the marching band and continued his band career with several dance bands in the 1950s, the American Legion Band and Iowa Western Band. He mainly played his beloved clarinet but would often alternate with his saxophone. He went on to teach clarinet lessons and piano lessons for many years. Walter attended AHA University and Omaha graduated in 1948. He was united in marriage to Joanne Purcell at Francis Catholic Church on October seventh, 1950. Walter was a lifetime member of the St. John Lutheran Church. He was also a lifetime blood donor, receiving many donor pins. Walter worked for 35 years at Union Pacific. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his wife of 21 years, Jean, her sister Irene Ma, brother, Bob Sherman, sisters-in-law Cleo Hall and Leroy, Rosemary McNeil and Jack, and Patricia Rhodes. Walter leaves behind a daughter, Cindy Sherman and Mark Stratz of Bellevue, Nebraska, Kathy Beatty and Eric of Council Bluffs, and son John Sherman and Joanne of Papillon, Nebraska. 10 grandchildren, 20 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandson. Brother-in-law Bob Rhodes of Evansville, Indiana. Many loving nieces and nephews. Funeral services Thursday, December twenty eighth, 2023 at 1 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Visitation one hour prior. Burial in Memorial Park Cemetery with military rights tendered by the American Legion Rainbow Post's memorials, and memorials can be directed to St. John Lutheran Church. Kathleen A. Buchanan, September 24, 1942 to December 24, 2023. Kathleen M. Buchanan, age 81, of Council Bluffs, peacefully passed away at her home on December 24, 2023. Kathy was born on September 24, 1942, to the late Dr. J. Phillip and Patricia E. Cogley. She joins her sister Charlotte McCarthy, her brother John Cogley, and her dear friend Harold Russell into eternal rest. Kathy was a graduate of Duchenne Academy in Omaha, Nebraska, and attended Creighton University. She was a lifelong resident of Council Bluffs and worked at Thomas Jefferson High School for over 20 years. She was a member of Saint Patrick's Catholic Church and a lifelong supporter of the Saint Albert schools. Kathy was instrumental in the start of the Saints softball program and was an avid fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes and Creighton Blue Jays. Kathy is survived by two daughters, Beth Buchanan of Aurora, Colorado, and Patricia Athey and boyfriend Jesse Rupie of Crescent, Iowa. Son, Matthew, and wife, Sarah, of Perlin, Texas. Kathy adored her grandchildren, Cody, Alexander, Spencer, and Morgan, and many nieces and nephews. Wake service Thursday at 6 p.m. with visitation to follow until 8 p.m. at St. Patrick's Catholic Church, 4 Valley View Drive. Massive Christian Burial Friday at 10.30 a.m. also at the church. Interment in St. Joseph's Cemetery with a luncheon to follow at the church social hall. In honor of Kathy, memorials are suggested to the Council Bluff Schools Foundation Scholarship Fund at Thomas Jefferson High School or to the St. Albert Schools. Wilbur C. Curley Morrison, August twenty seventh, nineteen thirty five to december twenty third, twenty twenty three. Wilbur C. Curley Morrison, age eighty eight of Council Bluffs, passed away on december twenty third, twenty twenty three, at Bethany Lutheran Home. Curley was born August 27, 1935, in Bartlett, Iowa, to the late Charles and Cecil Collins Morrison. He was in the U.S. Air Force stationed in Spain. Curley studied construction at Milford College in Nebraska and worked in insulation later. He retired from Mastercraft Furniture. Curley enjoyed fishing and wood carving. In addition to his parents, Curley was preceded in death by his brother Butch and sister Bonnie. He leaves behind his angel, Margaret. Stepson, Eric Phillips, daughter, Bonnie uh, and Jamie, and son, Chuck and Shauna. Seven grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, and many beloved cousins and friends. Memorial service Saturday at 2 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill, Meyer, Woodring, Bayless Park Chapel. Visitation with the family one hour prior to the service on Saturday at the funeral home. Memorials are suggested to the Bartlett Community Church. Now we turn to the sports page and football, college signing, and this article is titled Elwood Proud to Commit to Panthers. With the new year right around the corner, millions of people are preparing for new beginnings and new chapters of their lives. Trainer senior Carson Elwood, right before the holiday break, signed on for the next chapter of his life as he will continue his athletic and academic career at the University of Northern Iowa the multi-sport athlete for the Cardinals signed a letter of intent to play football for the UNI Panthers. Though Elwood is currently enjoying his time with the Cardinals boys basketball team and plans to enjoy his second semester at trainer, Elwood is eager to begin his tenure in Cedar Falls. It felt awesome to make it official, Elwood said. The recruiting process is a lot of fun, but it can also be pretty stressful. It's good to finally have my decision done and over with and enjoy the rest of my time here in trainer and then get ready for the upcoming football season. Elwood led the Cardinals with 892 receiving yards on 61 receptions and had 13 touchdowns. Many things attracted Elwood to become a Panther, but one of the main things was the coaching staff and learning more about their plan for the team. I got to go up to you and I over the summer and attend their camps, Elwood said. From the start, I loved the coaches. They were great to me, and I also made it to a game day to see how this team plays and how it was in the dome. It was awesome, and the atmosphere was great, and I knew that this was a team that I wanted to become a part of. That, and a familiar and former Division I player, was his recruiter as well. Joe Gans was the one who recruited me, and he used to be the quarterback at Nebraska in the early 2000s with Bo Pelini, Elwood said. It was pretty cool to get attention from someone like him and just get to be a part of that and now learn from him, and I'm excited to see what he teaches me. Elwood, being a multi-year starter for the Cardinals, hopes to find ways to contribute to UNI's program as soon as possible and is ready to work for a spot on the field right away to help the Panthers to succeed over the next four years. For the first couple of years, I just want to contribute in any way I can, Elwood said. I am hoping sooner rather than later that I can move up to a bigger role and see what we can win and we'll see from there. Hopefully we can make a couple of playoff runs. While Elwood continues his football career, he also plans to study nursing. This upcoming school year will be the inaugural year for the program of study at UNI. Elwood plans to major in nursing and get his Bachelor of Science in nursing. Though he's not committed to a specific career yet, some, certainty, some certainly stand out over others. Once I get my nursing degree, I'll figure out where I want to go from there, Elwood said. I've thought about a few different things, but haven't really narrowed it down to anything specific. Though I have thought being a life-flight nurse would be a cool job. Just to see how that works, and I think it would be really interesting." Elwood will begin attending UNI in the fall of 2024. Now turning to college basketball, this story is titled, Where Creighton, Nebraska, and Omaha Basketball Land in the Latest NET Rankings, by Sam McCowan. Most of the major college basketball teams in Nebraska dropped in the NET rankings last week. Women's teams, Creighton, number 19, Nebraska, number 21, Omaha, number 306. Men's teams, Creighton, number 13, Nebraska, number 57, Omaha, number 286. The NCAA uses the NET as a tool to help determine the top teams for seeding and inclusion in the NCAA tournament. One part of the NET system breaks games down into four quadrants, with Quadrant 1 wins being the best and Quadrant 4 victories being the worst. NET rankings are to some degree affected by a team's opponents. UNO teams are almost always eventually dis- destined to have lower NET rankings because of their peers in the Summit League, while Nebraska benefits from its higher-rated peers in the Big Ten. Margin of victory is part of the NET Formula 2, incentivizing and rewarding blowout wins, even of low-rated teams, during the course of a season. Creighton's men... Are two and one in quadrant one. They beat one top seventy-five NET team on the road, Nebraska, and one top twenty-five NET at home, Alabama, while losing to Colorado State at a neutral site. Colorado University or Creighton University is seven and two in the rest of the quadrants, with quad two losses to UNLV and Villanova. The Blue Jays dropped four spots. To number 13 and will play at Marquette on Saturday. Nebraska's men have played a single quadrant one game the 89 to 60 loss to Creighton but now have a two and one record in quad two. Six of NU's 10 wins are in quadrant four. The Huskers dropped six spots from 51 to 57 despite a win over North Dakota and you host South Carolina State on Friday before returning to Big Ten play next week. Omaha's men are 0-2 in Quadrant 1, losses at TCU and Texas Tech, 0-1 in each Quadrant 2 and Quadrant 3, and 2-3 and in Quadrant 4. Four of the Mavericks wins over Doan, Mid-American Christian, York College, and Bellevue University are non division one victories that go unrecognized by the NCAA. UNO dropped six spots from last week after a loss at Cal Poly. The Mavs host Denver on Friday and head to South Dakota on Sunday. The Blue Jay women are three and one in quadrant one with wins at Nebraska and Drake and over Michigan State at a neutral site, plus a loss at Marquette. And six and one in the rest of the quadrants. CU dropped one spot from 18 to 19 despite a win over South Dakota State. CU returns to the court Saturday with a home game against Saint John's. The Husker women are one and three in Quadrant One: a win at Michigan State, a loss to Creighton at home, a loss to TCU at a neutral site, and a loss at Kansas. And six and zero in the rest of the quadrants. And U's two quadrant two wins are an 80 to 72 victory over Georgia Tech at home and a 71 to 52 win at Wyoming. The Huskers host Maryland on Sunday. The Omaha women are 0 and 1 in quadrant one, a 96 to 56 loss at TCU. Two of UNO's wins over College of St. Mary and Peru State are non-division victories not recognized by the NCAA. The Mavericks moved up 16 spots after beating Texas Southern and losing to TCU, and they'll play at Denver on Friday and host South Dakota on Sunday. As of Tuesday, both the CU and NU men's and women's basketball are projected to make the NCAA tournament. The Blue Jays teams are safely in, the men at the number four seed according to the bracket matrix compilation site, with the women as number five seed according to WISC. To ESPN, while the Husker teams are on the bubble as number twelve and number ten seeds, respectively. NET rankings by conference Big Ten women Iowa seven, Ohio State thirteen, Michigan State sixteen, Indiana seventeen, Nebraska twenty one, Minnesota thirty seven, Michigan thirty eight, Maryland thirty nine, Illinois sixty two, Purdue eighty one, Wisconsin one o one. Rutgers, 150, and Northwestern, 232. Big East women. Connecticut, 12, Creighton, 19, Marquette, 32, Seton Hall, 34, Villanova, 56, Georgetown, 78, DePaul, 90, St. John's, 94, Butler, 130, Providence, 142, Xavier, 308. Summit women. South Dakota State, 80, South Dakota, 99, Oral Roberts, 158, North Dakota State, 168, St. Thomas, 233, UMKC, 248, Denver, 263, North Dakota, 302, Omaha, 306, Big Ten Men, Purdue, 4, Illinois, 10, Wisconsin, 14, Ohio State, 28, Michigan State, 35, Nebraska, 57, Iowa, 63, Michigan, 69, Northwestern, 71, Rutgers, 84, Minnesota, 89, Indiana, 101, Maryland, 115, and Penn State at 132. Big East men. Connecticut, 8, Marquette, 11, Creighton, 13, Villanova, 31, St. John's, 51, Providence, 53, Butler, 55, Xavier, 60, Seton Hall, 88, Georgetown, 205, DePaul, 284. Summit men. Denver, 146. St. Thomas, 175. Oral Roberts, 186. North Dakota State, 203. South Dakota State, 204. North Dakota, 247. South Dakota, 285. Omaha, 286. And UMKC, 291. Now, must-see TV for the NFL. Saturday, 7.15 p.m. on ESPN, ESPN2, and ABC. In a possible NFC playoff preview, the Dallas Cowboys will play host to the Detroit Lions. In college football, Saturday at 3.10 p.m. on ESPN, two-time defending champ Georgia faces undefeated Florida State in Miami in the Orange Bowl. College football, Friday, 7.10 p.m. ESPN— Number seven, Ohio State takes on number nine, Missouri, in Arlington, Texas, in the Cotton Bowl. And finally, in college men's basketball, Saturday, 1 p.m., CBS, in the only game matching ranked teams this weekend, number 10, Marquette, hosts number 22, Creighton. More college basketball on TV, men's, 6 p.m., BTN, uh, Coppin State at at Maryland on Thursday at 8 p.m., on ESPN2, Southern Cal at Oregon, U UC Santa Barbara at UC Davis, and at 9 p.m., Pac-12 and uh, UCLA at Oregon State. In college football, on Thursday, 10 a.m., ESPN, the Wasabi Fenway Bowl, SMU versus Boston College in Boston. At one fifteen p.m. on ESPN, the Bad Boy Mowers Pinstripe Bowl, Rutgers vs. Miami in New York. At 4.45 p.m. ESPN, the Pop-Tarts Bowl, NC State vs. Kansas State in Orlando, Florida. And at 8.15 p.m. ESPN, the Valero Alamo Bowl, Arizona versus Oklahoma at San Antonio. In Men's Hockey at 10 a.m., NHLN, World Junior Championship Group Stage, Switzerland versus the U.S., Group B in Gothenburg, Sweden. And at 12.30 p.m. on NHLN, World Junior Championship Group Stage, Germany versus Sweden, Group A, Gothenburg, Sweden. In NBA Basketball at 6.30 p.m., NBA TV, Detroit at Boston. At 9 p.m., NBA TV, Miami at Golden State. In NFL football, at 7.15 p.m., Prime Video, New York Jets at Cleveland. In men's soccer, at 1.30 p.m., USA, Premier League, Tottenham Hotspurs at Brighton and Hove Albion. And tennis, at 8 p.m., on the Tennis Channel, United Cup Group Stage. Friday, in college basketball, men's, 8 p.m., ESPN 2, San Diego State at Gonzaga. ESPN U, Washington at Colorado. And at 10 p.m. on ESPN 2, Arizona State at Stanford. In college football, at 11 a.m. on Friday, ESPN, the Gator Bowl, Clemson versus Kentucky in Jacksonville, Florida. At 1 p.m. on CBS, the Sun Bowl, Oregon State versus Notre Dame, El Paso, Texas. At 2:30 p.m. on ESPN, the Liberty Bowl, Memphis versus Iowa State at Memphis, Tennessee. And at 7:10 p.m. ESPN, the Cotton Bowl, Missouri versus Ohio State in Arlington, Texas. And hockey, men's at 5 a.m. on NHLN. World Junior Championship Group Stage, Slovakia versus Norway, Group B, Gothenburg, Sweden, and tennis at 3 a.m. Tennis Channel, United Cup Group Stage, 5 a.m. Uh, and tennis on the, at the United Cup Group Stage, Saturday, College Basketball Men's, 11 a.m. FS1 Hofstra at Saint John's, 12 p.m. ESPNU, Quinnipiniac at Florida. 1 p.m. CBS Creighton at Marquette. ESPN 2, Virginia Tech at Wake Forest. And FS1, Indiana State at Michigan State. At 3 p.m. CBS, UCLA at Oregon. ESPN U, ESPN 2, sorry, Kansas versus Michigan State in Kansas City, Missouri. And on FS1, Chicago at DePaul. And at 6 p.m. on Fox, Ohio State versus West Virginia in Cleveland. In college basketball, women's at 11 a.m. on ESPN2, South Carolina at East Carolina. And on Fox, Ohio State at Michigan. At 1 p.m. on Fox, Baylor at Texas. In college football, at 11.10 a.m. ESPN, the Peach Bowl, Mississippi versus Penn State at Atlanta. And... p.m. ESPN, the Orange Bowl, Georgia versus Florida State in Miami. In lacrosse, men's at 3 p.m. ESPNU, NLL, uh, New York at Toronto. In NFL football, at 7.15 p.m. ABC, Detroit at Dallas, ESPN Detroit at Dallas, and ESPN2, Detroit at Dallas. And soccer, men's, 6.30 Six thirty a.m., USA Channel Premier League, Chelsea at Luttontown Town, and nine a.m. in USA Premier League, Everton at Wolverhampton, and that does it for today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, December 28, eighth, twenty twenty three. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, Iowa Radio Reading. Dot .org anytime. Thank you for listening.
1: Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earthdate. Sometimes we have too much electricity, but more often, grid operators are carefully managing its production to be sure that we have enough. So, a lot of work has gone into trying to store excess electricity to use later when we need it. The obvious solution, giant batteries, is still too expensive for most applications and has environmental implications, This has led scientists to look for other ways. One method uses surplus power to compress air and pump it into old salt mines. The salt tends to seal cracks in the walls, making the mines airtight. When needed, the compressed air can be released to turn a turbine, or it can be used as the intake air for a natural gas power plant, making the plant more productive. Another way to store excess energy is to pump water uphill into existing reservoirs and then release it through hydroelectric dams when power is needed. This method was pioneered 100 years ago in Italy and Switzerland and is used today around the world and in many U.S. states like Michigan. On the Chilean coast, they're even experimenting with using solar energy to pump seawater up a cliff where it could flow down to make power at night. These solutions don't make economic sense unless the electricity is very cheap and the reservoir was already built for another purpose. But when those two things are present, pumping air and water to store energy plays a valuable role in balancing the grid to meet our ever-changing power demands. For EarthDate, I'm Scott Tinker.
0: EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production
1: and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.
2: Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain. But no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required. And you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.